Genesis 43, 13 through 14. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And we'd love to talk to you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss with you Genesis 43 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We want to make sure that we impart to you and emphasize to you that we love the Bible, that we cherish the Bible, that the Bible is a great gift that God has preserved over the centuries, over time for us. And uh, this great gift is not something that we want to misuse. It's not something that we want to uh, treat lightly. And so we encourage you to reach out to us in this effort. We're working to strive to seek more about who God is and what God would have us to do in our lives, to properly apply the truths of the word to our lives so that we can be his disciples. And so related to that, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can reach us on Facebook. You can search at Walking Through the Book. You'll find us there very easily. Be glad to take your messages or questions there. Also, you can email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and other podcasts hosted on NorthColumbusChristians.com. That's the website of the North Columbus Church of Christ. That's the congregation that I work with and worship with in Columbus, Mississippi. And uh, certainly would love to have you here if you're ever in town for any reason. Maybe you're going to a Mississippi State game over in Starkville. And so we encourage you, if you can, to come visit us anytime. So, uh, Bryant... um, Thanks so much for being with us again, of course. And why don't you go over the flow of the program and let everybody know how to get in touch with you? Absolutely. So I uh, I work uh, as an evangelist at the Garden City Church of Christ. Uh, we meet we meet um, just west of downtown Savannah uh, uh, Sunday and Wednesday. Um, Sunday at nine thirty, ten thirty, and two o'clock. Wednesday night at seven o'clock. If you're ever in the area and want to join us, um, the website is gardencitycoc.org. And uh, I've mentioned this, um, I think, on a couple of the podcasts, but we're working on a new website. Um, so the, the one that we have is, is kind of outdated, but the information for assembly times and all that should be, um, should be accurate. It just doesn't have like any recent sermons or anything. Um, but yeah, it'd be great if you're in the area to get a hold of us. We have a Facebook page as well. Um, the title of the Facebook page will be Garden City Church of Christ. Um, so if you're ever looking for a congregation to be meeting with coming through Savannah, just let us know and we'd love to uh, give you a house to stay in if, if you're willing to uh, let the brethren show you some hospitality. And for the flow of the program, uh, 
as we um, do for every episode, we just, like Stephen said, just want to keep it keep it really simple. Uh, we just read the text initially and just talk about some brief observations that uh, may have stuck out to us when we when we read through it. And after that, we try to connect some themes together, whether it be just overall in Genesis or just the overall picture of uh, the story of the Bible, uh, connecting things maybe even uh, to things that Jesus taught or, or did, or even just to the church as well. Um, and then after that, we try to always conclude making some applications from the text as well. So that'll be the that'll be the way that we'll go through it today. Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house, and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said, and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. 
So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, O my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He said, Be at ease, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So, of course, in the initial observation section, we want to look at the things that really have uh, jumped out at us, some things that really seem uh, maybe significant in the local context of the chapter and maybe the book of Genesis, but not much farther than that. <laughs> and so, uh, we, we break those rules on a pretty common basis, but that's OK. Um, I, I, you know, I do find, though, that having these limitations, it helps me get a lot out of the text personally because yeah. it. No, forces you to zero in on some things. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, I, I I do love that. You know, at the end of of the last uh, episode, you know, when last we uh, saw our heroes, um, we, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't looking very good because you had one of these brothers that was, uh, you know, left with the Egyptians. And uh, Jacob slash Israel is is talking about, you know, hey, you're not going to do this. You're not going to take your your my last son from uh, from Rachel. Basically, is what he's saying. And he says, if you did, you'd bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. 
And so that, that grief is there, but here it seems like, uh, it's ending in a pretty, pretty good place overall. Um, at least to the point where everyone's together. They still don't know who Joseph is. Uh, but you know, I, I, I don't know. It kind of a few interesting things here that, you know, one thing that, that really jumped out at me was that what, what does it take for Israel to be okay with this plan? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes uh, his back being to the wall and well, we're out of food again. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that, Brent? Yeah. I mean, it seems like they realize, I mean, there's just, there's literally no other way to live. I mean, that, that the famine must've just been hopelessly bad. Because mm-hmm. obviously, I mean, you look at verse eleven. I mean, they had they had stuff, you know, but I think they perceived that what they had was it. You know, they they were not going to be able to get anything else. Yeah, they haven't waited until it's gotten to a, an extremely dire situation, of course. But I mean, they they certainly are not in the best of places, and yeah, you know, it's really hard for us to. I think get our heads wrapped around because, you know, at least in this country, we live in such, uh, you know, I, I guess decadence is, is the right word. <laughs> and, and there's really no worry about daily needs for most people, I would say. Um, uh, but you know, of course there are some people that are hurting in this country as well. I don't mean to say that, but regardless, um, you know, it's a tough situation, but he finally, is willing to take this risk and you know, kind of why I, I grabbed that verse 13 and 14 for our sort of reference verse or core verse is because it seems like he's willing to take this risk. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. And so, um, and so they go back and, uh, you know, again, I get this sense that these brothers, are not bucking against Joseph's way of doing things whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of his brothers going back a little bit, verse eight and nine, uh, I guess eight, three, especially eight and nine, but I mean, eight through 10, like Judah, it really strikes me how Reuben had offered to like, he basically offered his two sons. And, but for some reason, what Judah says is more compelling I think it's interesting in verse nine, like it seems like what he's saying is if he fails, he will be under like a permanent curse, basically. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's invoking a curse on himself and mm. he's saying like, maybe it seems like to me saying like any children I have, any lineage I have will be forever cursed. Mm. That's, that's a pretty risky place that Judah is putting himself in really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's major. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, you think about this in comparison, if we go back to like back in chapter 38 and the lesson that Judah learns there, seemingly um, really kind of fascinating uh, and fascinating here that Judah is is kind of sticking his neck out for the sake of the family, for the sake of, of the fact that they can get they can get the food that they need to live. What were some things that kind of jumped out at you? Oh, just in the chapter in general. Uh, yeah. Just other oh, than yeah, what we've yeah. already talked about. Well, one of the, <laughs> one of the things is just, um, 
Joseph's emotion is just interesting to me. Uh, you know, like verse um, t- verse 30, where he goes out and, and weeps. I think it's just interesting you see how emotional Joseph is with all of this. Yeah, that is sort of fascinating. Again, um, it's the conundrum that we get into that we talked about last week that I don't think Joseph is, is behaving like a worldly right. person would. I think he's behaving in a way that, you know, he has compassion on his brothers and think about this too. They're in the middle of a famine. He knows how much they're suffering. He, uh, he, he has an idea how much his father Israel is suffering. And, uh, you know, I wonder if it's just something that's holding him back again, holding him back from immediately bringing them in. And we talked about that a lot the last episode, so I don't want to belabor that too much. But you know, just the fact that he does have this, uh, I would say, this emotional response yeah. toward that, um, it shows that he's he's feeling these things rather deeply, and that the 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 truths of what's going on and what's what's happening really do mean right. something to him. Yeah, because the New American Standard in verse 30 says he was deeply stirred. And I'm, I'm sure the, you know, when, whenever I have looked up on like um, websites where you can look up the original words and stuff, you know, sometimes when I see words of emphasis that are not seemingly common words, I tend to be drawn to look those up, you know, and see how commonly they're used or what that emphasis is looks like in other places in scripture, you know, so this, this idea of being deeply stirred to me is, is interesting. And, um, I would imagine that that's, that's, uh, that's a, a, a rare emphasis or, or one that would generally relate to this idea of just the strongest sense of emotion. Uh, New King James says now his heart yearned for his brother. So, uh, I guess maybe in his heart, he, he really wants to uh, open up. He really wants to uh, pour out himself to his brothers. It's it's interesting that they determined to take double the money with the present, you know, just, I don't know. It, it's something that I think will be worth talking about a little later, but it, it I just find it interesting that they do so much to come back so humbly and, you know, they add double the money, they take extra presents and, and just verse 14, you know, just that, that prayer or that, that blessing that's invoked, I find very interesting because obviously that's going to be answered. And then some, you know, that he will release to you, your other brother and Benjamin. So I just think it, all of that to me is, is very, very interesting. So in this section, of course, we want to look at the bigger themes going on. Let's look at the big picture aspect of the scriptures. What is scripture in general telling us? What does the context of the Bible tell us about this chapter? And 
we let context go in some ways, both ways, right, Bryant? I mean, in the sense that there are times when I will allow uh, one passage to inform my context about other passages. Um, and, you know, certainly we find passages of the New Testament that give us a different perspective on the passages of the Old Testament and also vice versa. And, uh, and there is indeed a context to the whole Bible. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we look at these things, we want to be looking in, in that sort of big picture view to try to pull these threads together and consider these truths together. Um, one of the first things just to kind of run through this chapter back through this, um, obviously, uh, what, you know, what are some things that a famine might be a parallel of, uh, in scripture, there are a number of places where, I mean, you see the drought in the time of Elijah, uh, you see, um, you know, I, I can't think of anything particular in terms of famine, except that, you know, usually those things are part of God's judgments when he's proclaiming, uh, judgment against Israel. He talks about the fact that eventually it's going to get so bad that you're going to eat your own children. Um, mm. things such as that, but, uh, you know, just the backdrop of a famine has a lot of implications with it in scripture. And so that's kind of interesting. And, you know, one other thing that really is jumping out at me is the fact that here is the ancestor of Jesus, Judah. Uh, Jesus is, is of this tribe. This is the tribe that mes- the Messiah is going to come from. And here's Judah, and he's sticking his neck out in a very personal sense. You know, you mentioned, Bryant, uh, last time that Reuben was putting his children up for the sake of, hey, if this doesn't work out, you can kill these children, you know. Um, and But now Judah is putting himself up in that way, almost in a sacrificial sense, which I think has some implications uh, going forward in terms of the Messiah. I'm not saying that Judah himself realized these implications, but it is kind of interesting when we see that, that Judah is willing to take the fall, so to speak, so this situation can be resolved. And so they can right. actually have the food they need to live. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that's, a, I think that's a powerful type of Christ. You just imagine you know, Jesus being willing to invoke a curse on himself in order to bring back who God is seeking, which ultimately is is us, you know, Gentiles and even the true Israel. You know, you just imagine like, I don't know, verse nine almost makes me picture like a conversation between Jesus and God where, you know, God's just losing and losing and losing, you know, verse six you know, by the time Jesus has sent, like everything looks so bad for the father, you know, and, and the fact that God organized it where the demand is that Jesus has to sacrifice himself. Like God, the father has been treated very badly, you know? And so Jesus, Jesus being willing to do what he's willing, what he did. Um, I think because he saw, he saw his father and the circumstances in a strangely similar way, obviously what Jesus did was much more perfect and unfathomably more difficult, but, but, but yeah, so just that, that, that 
mission that Jesus went on, I think you could definitely relate in verse nine, you know? And, and it's not, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm making too much of this. It's not a perfect parallel, of course, I think, because, um, you know, I, I think this aspect is true in verse nine. I myself will be surety for him, or I, I look at that as like earnest or, uh, you know, like a down payment or collateral, some, some aspect of that. Um, and from my hand, you shall require him. Uh, let me bear the blame forever. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure that parallels completely along with Jesus. Of course, that gets into that conversation, Bryant, between was Jesus a representative sacrifice or was he literally a sacrifice that took on the sins? And uh, I, that gets into a discussion that probably would be outside of the purview of what we're trying to do with this episode. But, um, but regardless, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm bringing all this up for no point really, but at the same time, like I, I think I can, we, we can appreciate that, uh, that this is indeed the attitude of Christ that at the very least, you know, he did indeed put himself on the chopping block as it were. I mean, he hung on the cross for us and, uh, and I agree, like it, it, it had to have been something where he was telling the father that he was willing to do this. And, and really that's what he's doing throughout the gospel of John. You know, this is, this is my purpose. This is why I've come. Uh, this is what my father wants me to do. And of course, in the other gospels, um, you know, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What an awesome lesson for us. And, uh, and here I think we have a type or a shadow of it in Judah. Yeah. And, and I think that idea of let me bear the blame for you forever. You know, I think it's the idea of what Jesus was willing to risk if he failed because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. failure was an option. You know, Jesus, he didn't fail, but I mean, he could have failed. Right. And I think it's it's hard to appreciate the risk and the passion and the dread and the anticipation of the father knowing what he was risking, but Jesus knowing what pressure he was under. And I think it's it's healthy in verse nine to take that very personally. Like I need to appreciate how much Jesus risked for me, you know, and, and I need to be moved by that being something that could be said about me, you know, Jesus even thinking if I don't bring Bryant back, let me bear the blame before you, you know? And I just, I think that's a very powerful thought. Um, it just, it reminds me of Romans 15, four about how the scriptures, uh, how the scriptures were written for our learning, the old Testament scriptures. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope, you know, like things like this just further persuade me of the magnificence of God's love for me. And it just really gives me hope and encouragement. I think also we can consider that Israel is willing to take that chance as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's willing to, he's willing to stretch himself out in this way. So again, if we're talking about parallels here, we could say that Judah is sort of a type of Christ. In some ways, Israel is a type of the father, right? He's mm-hmm. got the plan. Mm-hmm. He's got the whole thing they're going to need to do. He is not, he himself is not the one necessarily uh, seeming to be active in this story, yet he overshadows the whole thing. Right. Um, 
So that's kind of fascinating to me. And of course, he's he's hoping that God gives them mercy before this man in Egypt who has dealt harshly with his sons. I just all of a sudden was thinking as you were you were talking made me think about how like you know because I think sometimes the types can intersect with one another in some of these stories like you know the the roles like Jesus may not just be one specific role um, but I think it's interesting if you think about who Judah's going to it's almost like there's there's some sense where Jesus was treating Israel of the flesh when he came to them like Joseph he was trying to beseech their favor he was trying to win them he was he was a present sent to them on behalf of the father and just how desperate Jesus was to make reconciliation restitution and you have to think like do we deserve to be in the position of Joseph in this story it's like no not at all you know and I, I think that's it's very humiliating and humbling to think that in a lot of these stories, what's what's I think hardest to perceive sometimes is that God and Jesus are taking the meager position in the story and not always the type is not always exclusively the one in the position of power. Sometimes the type is when you see someone in the position of need and meagerness. And I think it can be really powerful to begin to see how how God takes that position as a type as well as the position of power. And it's it's just mind-blowing that both could be taken, but I mean, it makes sense because Jesus is both the king, but he's also the one crucified. Jesus lived a homeless life, like the life of a beggar, but he was also the richest and is the richest of all of all existence. Um, so I don't know if that, that makes sense, but I just, I, I find those things very just awe-inspiring and incredible. Now, that makes perfect sense because, um, you know, I, I don't think we have to pigeonhole it one way uh, precisely in these stories. Um, you know, one thing I'm thinking about, too, is how, you know, Israel, he's, he's seeking out the best for his family. But at the same time, he knows this is their only shot. This is it. And, you know, that, that certainly in terms of salvation, in terms of gaining wisdom, in terms of the true knowledge that we need to know to live a life that's fulfilled, truly fulfilled, mm-hmm. the only place we can find that is in Christ. And, and that, that kind of goes along with, with everything we see in the New Testament. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, making God, and this gets into application, of course, making God, uh, our sustainer and our provider and making sure that we know that's the case. I mean, that's one of the purposes of, of fasting, by the way, is to help remind us of who actually is providing for us. And there's no uh, model that we find in the New Testament about when a Christian should fast or how long or what he should fast from. But uh, but I think things like that are associated with, and let's get into this other aspect too, of restraint. Um, even in what Israel is saying here, there is restraint because he wants them to take uh, uh, double the money in your hand and take back in your hand that was returned, the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. So he's saying, take double the money that we would pay otherwise, as well as return everything that you guys got back. 
So, uh, you know, I think Israel could easily have said, well, let's pocket that money. Let's buy some, you know, but, but again, I think it goes back to, there's no other, I don't think there's any other source they can go to. I don't think they can go North. I don't think they can go West, you know, to, to find, um, excuse me, East. Yeah, of course they can't really go West because, because uh, that's the Mediterranean. But, uh, ultimately, uh, they have to go to the Southwest, uh, to, to Egypt because that's, you know, there's a reason why God has made it. So they're the ones that are prepared to, to aid in this. And again, in the same sense, here's Joseph again, that, that theme of, of restraint, that theme of holding back, you know, God's people hold back. God's people restrain themselves. God's people control themselves. Uh, what an awesome lesson. And that, that is all throughout scripture where if, if we would simply let God control our will and allow our will to be dominated by his, that again, it's the lesson of Jesus in the garden that we can, we can learn that and we can, we can live that. And how many examples in the Bible of righteous people who could have done something, but withheld that and restrained that. And all the times where you see even good men mess up and fail is because they lack restraint. Um, number of examples, for some reason, the, the example that's popping up in my head is with David and Bathsheba. You know, just a, just some restraint on David's part could have stopped that. Um, but, but it, of course, that's not the way things went. But I, I'd, I'd love your thoughts and your, your perspective on that, Bryant. No, that, that's such a great point. Um, what you were saying was making me think about um, how we, and we like you said, we've had these discussions earlier in Genesis, but how God restrains his emotion until that emotion can be productively understood. You know, like, I mean, the disciples saw Jesus in the garden and they didn't understand how to respond or why he was that way, you know? And I feel like something I don't appreciate in Jesus's life is Jesus had such a discipline of emotional self-control. The more, the more I read the old Testament, especially the more I appreciate the intensity of the emotion that Jesus was constantly feeling that he held back because nobody it would have distracted his mission. It would have distracted people. Uh, and, and, and it's like once Jesus went to the cross, it finally makes sense. And we can look back in the old Testament. We can appreciate the prophets more, the Psalms more, the histories more. And we can appreciate that God was feeling emotions that Jesus felt on the cross the whole time. And that just, it amazes me how much, how much God feels that he holds back. And, and I think it is important to, to know that God does feel and that we do, we do impact God in what we choose to do towards him and our relationship with him. And it, it, it impacts God in ways that are beyond what, what I, what I appreciate or even understand, but but yeah, I, I think there's there's some application lessons, obviously, in that too. But but I think it, it is interesting to think about how God waits until it's not that He's not feeling things when He's not revealing it. It's just that He waits to reveal it until 
we gain something from knowing that. I think that's a great point. And, and, and that restraint, I mean, think about this. Okay. So we're, what's the problem? A well, lack of food. What does Jesus do when he sees the crowd out in the wilderness and he knows that if he lets them go, they're going to faint on the way. Um, why does he take the five loaves and the two fishes and make a completely full meal for over 5,000 people? Um, it's because of his compassion and God has always had that compassion. So he's seeing his promised people. He's seeing his, the, the beginnings of his nation. He's seeing them on the brink of starvation. Wouldn't it be so much easier if he just simply interacted supernaturally and provided food for them much in the same way that we see him provide food for people like Elijah down the road? Um, wouldn't it be so much easier if he did that, but he does not do that. He holds back on that. And I think, I think you touched on the reason for that restraint. When we see again, the interaction between Joseph and, and his brothers, uh, you know, they're talking to him about the, about the money and everything, but I love the reassurance in verse 23, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So again, this is almost immediately, he's not being very harsh to them. Uh, he's very like inclusive of them. And uh, again, I think this, th- this, this to me would parallel of the uh, great uh, care and hospitality I mean, you could really talk about in terms of Jesus had for his apostles um, and how he wanted to make sure that they were provided for. Uh, Sometimes when the crowds got too much, he would take his apostles uh, to the side to a deserted place so they could rest up and, you know, just uh, be able to uh, uh, recharge, so to speak. Um, You know, maybe maybe that's a stretch there. But what do you think about that, Brent? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because um, that is interesting that he tells them not to be afraid and that, you know, God gave them the treasure. Clearly, Joseph didn't need their money or their gifts. Um, I don't know. It's it's making me think about parallels with, with Jesus, like in Luke chapter 5, when Peter fell at Jesus's knees and said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Uh, just when, when somebody is sincere and repentant, you know, like there's that idea of like that fear of, I don't have anything to give, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you're afraid because you realize that you have things that you shouldn't have, you know, and, and you feel compelled, like this, what do I do with this? But then the amazing thing is God doesn't need your money or your possessions. What, what God wants is a humbled heart and he just wants he wants me. He wants you, you know, and, and there's something extraordinarily comforting about that, you know, in the panic of you realize you realize you're in this 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 sinful condition. You realize why you're in that condition. You realize God has been unfathomably gracious and just his blessings have been abused and stolen. And and and, there, and I think verse 23 is is a is a great parallel to how God responds to us. You know, it's like. God says, you know, put your checkbook back. You know, I'm not looking for 
you know, I'm not looking for to give you salvation because you're able to give me money or donate certain amount to me or anything like that, you know? So I just think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Very gracious in the way that he treats them. And, uh, um, you know, it, it does make me think of, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Mm, because yeah. what that speaks of is in the Beatitudes, it's talking about the fact that I have nothing to give to God except my heart. Um, right. That's all I have. And I am in spiritual poverty. There's nothing I have that is valuable to God outside of myself. And so that's what I need to give to him. And the interesting thing about that is that the scriptures tell us that when we give our heart to God, that's enough. You know, that's, that's all that, that's all that he wants. He wants us to, he wants us to be his possession. And, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of neat things there. Won't go too far into that right now, but. So I wonder if that relates to the end of this chapter, like, Jesus talked a lot about, you know, the, the supper, you know, the, the supper of the kingdom, um, like Luke 14 really talks about that. And I wonder if this relates to that, like the idea that God's covenant is ultimately about us having a place in his family to eat at his table. Um, and that God even gives us like this position of honor, like how Joseph honored Benjamin. I don't know. It makes me think about, um, when Jesus was with the crowds and then his mother and brothers came to get him and they asked for him and Jesus was told about that. And he looked around at the crowd around him and said, uh, those who hear the word of God and do it are my mother, my brother, my sister, you know? So Jesus was saying like, if you hear the word of God and do it, you're my family. And, and I wonder if that, that relates to this is God gives us this special position, this distinct position of, of honor. And, and that, that ultimately is the invitation, which is, which is the greatest invitation because the invitation is, is to be close to God and to be regarded as like Joseph, how Joseph re- regarded his brothers as equals. And I think the better I understand who God is and what my sin has done to me, the more humbling it becomes that God invites me to his table in this way. Um, you know, Matthew eight, there's the contrast when Jesus is talking about the faith that he found in the centurion, right? Uh, Matthew eight eleven. I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom right. will be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, so that's a very, very stark contrast to recognize that sometimes right. even those that will think of themselves as being part of the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom. They're actually not going to sit at the table. Dude, Steve, think about this. What if, Oh, everybody outside of the kingdom are like the Egyptians. Oh yeah. Like people in the world are around us, but they're not in fellowship with us. And therefore even in the commonality of life, there's that that separation. And I wonder if, if that's the thing is we eat at the table of the king daily in a spiritual sense, yet we're in a foreign land and there's this separation that exists between us and the world. Yes, and it's a hostile separation because just as the right. Hebrews right, right, are right. an abomination to the Egyptians to sit and eat with us, there are certainly times where the world will look at Christians 
with an eye of, oh, oh, they're an abomination. They don't deserve to live. I mean, seriously, I mean, you can find this kind of rhetoric out there. Uh, if you, you, you really don't have to look far, unfortunately. Um, that, oh, if, if someone's not willing to go along with this, then we, we should just kill them off, you know? Uh, so that's, that's where we have to really, uh, you know, keep that in mind, but, but that's all throughout scripture. I mean, um, so much of the new Testament is about recognizing that, yeah, these people are going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. They're going to think that you're trash. And it's almost like I get, I always get the impression when I read those passages that I, I shouldn't be surprised about that. I shouldn't be shocked about that right. because this is the world. And, and there is no shock here. Uh, everybody's where they're going to be. And, uh, and there's a reality to that. Now, of course, here, it, I think it was along racial, uh, you know, physical differences. Um, I think, for example, as I understand it, the Egyptians regarded shepherds or shepherding as a, a filthy exercise or <laughs> some, some, something to that effect that it was not an honorable trade. And I don't know why they thought that, but that's, I've always heard that. And I don't know if you've heard that before. I I have, I think later it's inferred. And I, I think it's maybe because of the idolatry and the worship of animals in the Egyptian culture. But I'm going to say something really weird that may not be true at all. It's just kind of a, a theory in my mind, you know, that may one day I may drop it and be like, nah, it's not. That's not a possibility, but it seems like at the end of Genesis, Egypt is exactly like Israel and Joseph's family is like the remnant that's supposed to come out of Israel of the flesh. And I say that because I don't know, there's, there's some interesting things like the, the priest portion of Egypt, you know, and there's just some weird things about Egypt at the end of this book that, that seems so connected to almost like typifying what Israel would later be and what God was going to do with the remnants of Israel to bring them out of them out of Israel. It's just, it's very strange. And those same types of Egypt are not an Exodus. Like it's only at the end of, of Genesis. Um, you know, the idea of the, the separation and then you've got the priests, you know, and Joseph married the daughter of one of the priests and, You know, everybody later in Genesis will sell themselves except the lands of the priests. And that's another one of the kind of the lands of the priest was not sold to the king of Egypt because that was like special, just like the lands of the priests in Israel was later special. So I don't know, just unusual and interesting. And that's just a random talking out loud theory (laughs) um, of a type that in my mind. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes we say things like that on this program and later on we learn something about that and... (laughs) But usually when that happens, it's been so long in the past that like, well, <laughs> like, I mean, I was, I was talking to, um, I was talking to Bryant before recording about, uh, Genesis 23 and how, you know, when Abraham is trying to, uh, bury Sarah in the land of the Hittites there and, uh, he's very cautious with them and everything. And, um, well, it turns out that the Hittites were not. I, I don't know if, if this is to be believed, what I understand culturally was that the Hittites were not really intending on giving him the land as the text says that really it's just talking about the fact that this is sort of a wheel and deal where they were offering it to give. And so that he would ask about the price and it would, you know, it, it's kind of like, 
it's kind of like two people in the South getting into an argument over who's going to hold the door for the other person. <laughs> uh, that, that gentility that uh, can some can sometimes get you in trouble. No, I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, getting off, off track here, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't really have anything in my mind that would say that what you said is wrong, Bryant. So, um, uh, you know, the Egyptians had a very particular culture and a culture that I really think is, uh, um, you know, very, very different from many of the ancient cultures that we find. Interesting what specifically is pointed out about their culture at this section of Genesis. Uh, I think yeah. that's, that's, that's to me what, to me, what hints at there being a type in it is just because of it's, it's like, it's, it's how their culture is, is talked about. It's, it's the details of what specifically is pointed out. Again, the priests, the separation, uh, the, the, uh, um, separation from the people of, of, of Israel. And then this idea of like the land of the priest, there's just, it's, it's just, it's almost like it's in your face, almost slapping you in the face. Like, Hey, this is, this is, uh, something to think about. I wonder if the idea that Joseph's brothers, because they were humbled, that even though they had been done evil things with Joseph, like everything was just going to kind of work out, you know? And I wonder if that's like the disciples abandoning Jesus, Peter denying Jesus, like because of who Jesus was and because they were hearers of the word and were active in doing it, God was still going to manage to work out their roles and make them better for it. Not that it undermines the guilt of their sin and their betrayal and abandonment of Jesus, but just like this, like there was, there was a plan, a thoughtful plan all along to bring them together in the end. And I wonder if that even relates to us when we sin against God, if we keep a repentant heart and if we continue to seek to make restitution for our sin and humble ourselves before the Lord I wonder if there's a type in this as well for us that we can be so thankful for the mercy and thoughtfulness of God that he does work all things out for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I just, I wonder if this relates to that. So you're saying that there would be almost like a, like a, a trust in him to the point that we don't really particularly think about it. Uh, like, I guess more of the idea of just being deeply humbled in God's willingness to thoughtfully continue with us, even though we are weak and sin and don't know everything like Joseph knew what he was working towards, even though they didn't. And so like it it worked out, you know, and I, I think that's kind of the idea of that part of Romans eight is we don't know everything. We are weak. We do struggle with the flesh, but if we keep ourselves in a proper condition of faith and humility and striving to put to death the deeds of the flesh, you know, God through his mercy is able to still work everything out for good, just like Joseph was still able to work everything out for good with his brothers.
So, of course, we want to apply what we have just talked about. And uh, we've actually touched on a couple of things already that I think are some pretty good application points. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest initial things that kind of come to mind that we need to think about, Bryant, is that, you know, again, going back to what is the source of the knowledge that we need? And uh, it's very important that we know that there is only one place to go. Just as there was only place, only one place for uh, the brothers to go to get food for the family, uh, there's only one place we can go to get our spiritual food, and that's the Word of God and the Word of Truth. And um, so I think there's a lot of things to consider there. Um, the willingness that we need to have to lay everything on the line so that we can reach that goal. Uh, mm-hmm. Judah being willing to put himself in a way that he's going to be cursed. Now, obviously, I don't think we're going to have that sort of curse today as people sometimes think of it. But uh, but you know what? Following after the one truth of life, I may, I may lose a lot in terms of my reputation. Uh, I may lose a lot in terms of how the world sees me. And so I need to be willing to put all of that on the line. And also I need to I need to have a plan for how embracing the truth is going to to be done. You know, Israel had a plan to go back and and ways to handle this situation. And uh it's important for us to have a plan to say, okay, how am I gonna search for this? How am I gonna strive for this? How am I gonna seek the Lord? Um people that People that sometimes claim they're seeking the Lord, I'm not really sure they are because it just seems like they're sort of bouncing around and letting the world inform them on on where to go and what to do. Uh, but that's just sort of a few things that that kind of occurred to me in terms of application, in terms of seeking that that one source of truth and how do we seek it, um, what plan do we use to seek it, and and how much how far are we willing to go in our search for that? Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Brian? No, I think those are those are great thoughts. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. That uh, almost sounds like I just came up with a sermon. I'm not sure, but <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, but what what are some things that kind of jump out at you, Brian, as points of uh, application? One is, I think, understanding repentance better. I think a lot of the Old Testament really helps us understand repentance. Um, like I think like 11 through 12, um, you know, they, they understood something had to be given back and they understood to give even more uh, because obviously, oh boy, you know, you, you, you stole something from like the king of the land, yikes, you know, and I I think when we understand who it is that we've offended, you know, we've stolen our lives from God. We've, we've stolen the blessings that he's given us from his own, from his, his own, um, well, everything we have is from God. I guess that's a simple way to say it. Every, everything we have is given by the grace of God, our bodies, our minds, our health, our resources, our, our jobs, our possessions, whatever we have, you know, it's, it's from God. 
you know, and the idea is we've used everything sinfully. Everything, everything has been used in a way that has not given God the appropriate glory. And it has influenced other people to turn away from God and not concern themselves with God or to see the glory of his goodness, to want to even attempt to seek him. Uh, so we are we are very, very guilty, you know, and I think 11 through 12, you know, the, the fear of what they had done and then just this desire, we need to we need to bring this back and we need to give more. And and I think that's the idea of re- repentance is repentance is, I think, not just I'm turning away from things, but I'm even willing to give back anything that I've stolen, anything that needs to be returned uh, and, and, and I think the heart that goes into this, even if there aren't physical things that need to be given back, I think there's a heart that's willing. And I, I don't think repentance has been taken to its appropriate place until that's where it arrives is I will give, I will give back and then some. And I think when, when that's the heart that we have, we really have begun to understand, uh, our guilt in a productive way. Uh, it is kind of fascinating that in this study of Genesis, I'm really learning that there are a lot of there are a lot more lessons that I feel like I can learn from these wicked brothers. <laughs> at, mm-hmm. at at times, wicked brother, we think of them as wicked brothers, right? There are a lot more lessons that I can learn from these wicked brothers than I might initially think, and uh, yeah. You know, I think studying and considering, even moving ahead, I think there's a lot we can still learn from them uh, in this story. Um, the separation of all the different peoples at the end of the chapter. Um, I don't know. Uh, some some people may think I'm stretching with this, but keep in mind, bear in mind, I'm speaking totally from a spiritual place. Uh, this has nothing to do with race or physical differences whatsoever. Um, we need to keep in mind that holiness demands a separation. And if you look at passages like Second Corinthians 6, it becomes very clear that God expects his people, even under the law of Christ, to be separate from certain types of people and uh, certain types of influences. And he intends for his people to be close to those who are like-minded, those who are part of the kingdom of Christ. And so there's a number of things that we could look at there and think about, but I just, and, and there's not a whole lot here about this. I just wanted to make that point that again, the world is going to look at us with, uh, with a thought that we're an abomination. And what's kind of fascinating, of course, is that sometimes the people that claim to be the most open-minded are the ones that are the most closed-minded toward those who are Christians. And so it's a good thing for us to keep in mind moving ahead that, just because we have these separations, just because we have these distances from people of the world, uh, it doesn't mean that that's the end of things, that there's no way we can have uh, contact with them. It just simply means there's a way that we can deal with these things and work through them, just as Joseph did. Joseph worked alongside Gentiles to get to where he is. And that's just really fascinating, really. And, and he submitted himself under these Gentiles to get to where he is in it, where, where we are in the story here. And again, I think a big core component of it is restraint. Uh, am I doing a good job at controlling myself? Am I keeping myself separate for the Lord, my God? Am I being a good worker for the kingdom? 
Am I making sure that I'm a tool fit for the use of the king? Um, I think all of these questions are good for us to consider. Yeah, and I think with, with the separation, Joseph, I don't think Joseph cared about the not eating with them, you know, because it's like, hey, he's still the king, basically. So, you know, them eating by themselves didn't seem like it offended him at all, you know. Right. And I, I wonder if there's an application there is like, if we really understand the position that we're put in in our salvation, man, it puts persecution in perspective because persecution, I think one of the goals is to bring you back into a physical identity, you know, stop identifying yourself as different, stop identifying yourself with these truths, you know, but when we understand that we are in an exalted position seated with Christ in heavenly places, it's like, no, that's fine. You know, it's, People can loathe us, but, you know, we're still exalted with Christ. And that, that I think, has a very assuring and calming effect on what could otherwise be very hurtful and discouraging. Well, and, and not to go too far back on the restraint aspect, but I think this is related to what you just said. Joseph has very healthy boundaries. And I think that's one yeah. thing that really... Yeah. I just thought about this and I think, I think it makes a lot more sense as to why he's holding back. You know, why doesn't he just, you know, because here's the thing we, we can have relationships in our lives that are toxic, right? Relationships in our lives that are not good for us. I mean, you would agree with that, right, Bryant? Right. And so there may be times where we need to distance ourselves from certain people so that we can be, in a good place, you know, even in terms of sometimes even brethren, there are some times where we need to try to distance ourselves from certain brethren if they're not, uh, influencing us in good ways. And, uh, you know, of course there's no one size fits all approach to this. And so I'm not suggesting that we just take what Joseph does and, and literally, you know, literally follow it every step of the way. I think that should be obvious. But, but I think there is a place where we can have proper, healthy boundaries to know that, hey, you've, you've hurt me and I'm going to hold back and kind of see where you are right now. And, uh, and, and there's nothing nefarious about that. I, I think you can, I think you can, can be in a place where you accept your brother, you assume the best of them, but at the same time, after a, a terrible thing they've done, there's going to be some time where you're coming back around. You're not going to be initially as close to them as you were. And that's just a realistic aspect of life. Um, you know, Paul didn't want John Mark to come along. I'm not quite sure why, but Paul didn't want John Mark to come along. Barnabas thought it was a good, good, good idea. Good reason to bring John Mark along. I don't know all the details of that, but I know that Paul had a place where he was saying, this is not going to be good. And he stood his ground with it. But neither of them, this is, that was not a, a right or wrong. And I don't, I don't think here is necessarily a right or wrong in this action. I think he is feeling out his brothers, trying to figure out where they are right now before he just tries to go back into the way things were. Does that make sense? So, a couple interesting applications came to me about evangelism. Oh, wow. Spill. So verse nine, the willingness to lose self, to reach others. 
and bring them to the Lord. We may not, <laughs> obviously we don't have to like take a curse on ourselves, but you think about first Corinthians chapter four, where Paul said, we're the scum of the earth, you know, for the sake of Christ. And I think a lot of that is what it, what, what it takes to reach people, what it takes to connect with people. Um, sometimes the people who are the best, the best, most receptive, uh, hearts are people who might not smell good. They might be really poor. They might be homeless. They might have a lot of problems in their life. And it's not convenient or comfortable to try to bring people like that to the Lord. So you really do have to almost like denounce, (laughs) you have to denounce yourself, you know, to, to go there. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Steve? Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, you you may run into people that are just as smelly as Bryant is. Um, but that's right, and that's pretty smelly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I've heard stories of brethren going into people's homes or apartments, and they're sitting in the living room, and while they're talking, they see a roach kind of skitter through the kitchen. You know, um. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a valid point. Is that all? That's not, that's not too bad. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, okay. Let's say this. Let's, let's say you saw a rat go through the kitchen. How about that? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, I guess that would be somewhat unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. I mean, I, I, I've, I've heard of brethren like being in people's homes with like a drug deal. Happens, oh yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. And that, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. The point is just being in, <laughs> being in uncomfortable situations. Yes. And really having to go way outside of yourself, way outside of yourself to reach people and, and I mean, bring people to the Lord. You know, Jesus sat and ate with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. I can't imagine right. those situations yeah, being completely comfortable for him. Um, right. But, oh yeah. I mean, oh, he must've just been constantly just unfathomably uncomfortable, you know, just, <laughs> man. But you know what? I, I I would wager to say the Pharisees, uh, made him more uncomfortable and more disgusted than Absolutely. any of those other people. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. And, and that's the, that's the craziest thing too. I think you mentioned, um, uh, in a lesson that I heard you uh, preach the other day about, you know, what would happen if someone, you know, just stopped bathing and then just didn't say anything about it and acted like everything was okay. Uh, you know, and and I think that's exactly what was happening with the Pharisees that they did not care about the fact that they cared more about the oral tradition than they did the law of God. Yeah. And, uh, so we don't want to be, we don't want to be there. And that's uh, ironically, that's really exactly how the Egyptians are in some ways. They have their their uh, kingdom. Uh, they have their things going on. Essentially, right now, they're one of the greatest powers, if not the greatest power in the world at this time. And so right. they've got it going on, and you don't. <laughs> and uh, but but the reality is that they're not a part of the family of God. And, but, but of course in the Messiah, all can come to be a part of the family of God. And that's the, that's the great beauty of it. And, and that does take getting out of our comfort zone, pushing the boundaries of what we think, uh, of, of what evangelism is 
as I like to say, evangelism is easier than you think, and it's also is harder than you think. And uh, right. so, so we need to be constantly allow ourselves to be challenged by Jesus, by Christ in these things. And I, I think we, I think you do see uh, some aspects of that here. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple other quick things. Um, one is it was essential for Joseph's brothers to come to understand him. And I think that's so important with evangelism is like people need to understand and discover Jesus before they're saved. Um, you know, because you get attracted in the book of Acts to these like one sermon conversions and, you know, that, that does happen and it just takes wisdom to like, to know people and to know who the person is and where they are. But I mean, the gospels are the length they are for a reason, you know, and there's four of them for a reason. Uh, God's not just trying to waste, waste space, you know, so people need to, they need to understand who Jesus really is and they need to discover that. Um, and it has to be personal for them, you know? And then I think as well, like the end of this chapter, um, I think it's important to pursue hospitality with people and to eat with people. Just like you just said, Stephen, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. You know, Jesus brought them into his house and they were like, what are we doing here? You know, they didn't, they didn't understand, but he, he loved them in a way they didn't understand. And I think the same when we're trying to reach people, you know, eating with people or having a meal with them at your own expense, you know, which it can be hard because there's a lot of things that I think in my mind, like, well, you know, if I'm paying for someone's meal, they're going to think that like the kingdom is about eating and drinking, but it's like, well, about calm down and pay for the person's meal and talk with them. And you just patiently teach them and just exercise wisdom as you get to know them. You know, I just, I tend to talk myself out of generosity in just really shameful and not godly ways. And so I think sometimes we just need to talk ourselves into being more intimate with people and going farther to connect with people over things like, like a meal. So I think that's a good principle for evangelism where Joseph just brought them into his home. And I think it, you know, going back to the evangelism aspect of this too, uh, it, it's, you know, one of the challenges for me is how do you deal with people who, who really just are, are thinking on a different level? And I think that, right. you know, I hit that on a pretty normal basis. Cause I mean, we, we, you know, we have a, yeah, definitely. you know, and yeah, I know you do too, Bryant. Um, you know, we have a, typically uh, every week we go have a study at the local, uh, drug and alcohol rehab place here in Columbus. And, and you're finding you're talking to guys who are coming in from being off the streets, essentially. And sometimes they may be just really like out of it. I mean, not really out of it conscious wise, but sometimes they're really unable to really think properly. And and that's not I don't say that to where they can't, period. It's just they're coming off of, you know, a lot of these withdrawals and things and they're having to fight these big fights uh, in terms of the, the, the terrible consequences of substance abuse. And so my heart goes out to them, right. you know, either they have a hard time concentrating or their focus is all over the map and they're, comp- you know, uh, going at 90 to nothing in their, in their thinking. And, uh, so, you know, th- that is of course a challenge to, to, uh, uh, again, I, I think that gets back to restraint, um, allowing, 
allowing what you say and the way that you approach them to be in a restrained, uh, calm, clear, and focused fashion um, and, and continue to yeah. almost – I know we're getting more into the topic of evangelism here. We need to have Jonathan Purrs over and talk more about this, but uh, uh, you know, over to the podcast, I say, <laughs> and uh, uh, to talk more about this. But in that patience in, in, in encouraging them, uh, keep encouraging them to go back to Jesus, just as you said, like, you know, let's look at who Jesus is. If someone wants to look at a different book of the Bible than the gospel, that's fine. We can do that. But sooner or later, we're going to try to get back to who Jesus is, because that's that's what will always challenge us. That's what will always guide us in the right way and, and take us to where we need to be. Yeah, connecting with people is so challenging because it really does require thinking about who they are, you know, where are they at mentally? Where are they at spiritually? Um, yeah, it's just, it's very challenging. It's challenging to love and connect with people based on who they are and loving them for who they are. That's such a good point. Everything you were saying. I do think there's a lot in here that we can learn from. And I think we've, we've probably only scraped the surface, but maybe it's been, useful for our listeners today. I know it's been useful for me. Did you have anything else that you wanted to go over, Bryant? No, that'll be it for me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Uh, We certainly hope you'll listen next time when we go into, Lord willing, Genesis 44. We're getting so close to the end of this book, Bryant. I'm a little nervous. I'm not quite sure what'll happen. It's a terrifying thought. (laughs) No, you know what? We'll finish Genesis and we'll go directly into Exodus, Lord willing. So um, that will be quite a change, and uh, we may need to we may need to even uh, change some of our music and, and the bumpers that we're using in the in the program to kind of reflect that change. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But uh, anyway, thank you so much again, uh, Lord willing. We'll be with you next time. Uh, talking about Genesis 44. Until then, study well and be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.